Patrick Custer, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Welcome. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here. Welcome back. Back home. Yeah. yeah. So uh, introduce yourself first. Well, I'm Patrick Huster. Uh, I don't know where to start. I'm a recovering human from lots of things, um, full of joy, life, and um, grateful to still be alive after a lot of uh, things that life brings were thrown my way. Absolutely. And especially as a recovering person, you've got a depth of experience just all around the traumas and the spaces and places that kind of we get nicked up along life. Yeah. But you're also a podcast host. Heck you yeah. You have your own show. Yeah. So this is probably a little bit of a different dynamic. I'm sure you've been on the opposite side of the mic, if you will. Yeah. In other shows. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. In fact, I wanted to say, you know, Christina and I, you were uh, in your show was a quite a bit of an inspiration for ours and what we've done at Cumberland Heights. So we're, we're literally following your lead um, wow. because just you have quite a reach and um, and it's very authentic. It's very genuine. And I really admire the environment that you've created on your show. Just job well done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that means the world to me. It's, yeah. um, it is what I say, my life's, it's only a portion like yours. It's only a portion of my job, right? Yeah. And um, it's become my life's passion project though, at least right now. Yeah. And um, something that I never knew I, I never knew that I would get into, or it wasn't something on a goals board, you know. Um, right. Yeah, it came out of a, a need and grew from there and kind of snowballed. How did you get started? COVID. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I used to work for Cumberland Heights here, loved it, learned a wealth of um, wonderful information that made me um, what I believe to be an effective uh servant helping to heal people in the world of uh, treatment, uh, mental health and substance use disorders. And um, I learned so much while I was here. Um, and was it your first job in behavioral health? No, it was, it was right in the middle. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like a lot of us, I've, I've, I've been, to, around. been yeah. to a few corporations and, um, but I now work for Promises Behavioral Health and we have, I, I oversee our national alumni efforts at all our treatment centers. And um, we've got thousands of alumni accumulatively. And when COVID hit, like I'm sure y'all experienced, all of a sudden you can't do in-person anything anymore. Mm. And it took a while for, as you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. everybody knows, mm -hmm. it took a while for the um, support group meetings, the anonymous support group meetings that many of us attend to um, stay healthy, uh, to get switched over and have uh, virtual access. And so for our alumni, we really, uh, we pivoted quickly like that next week and started the podcast. It was just internal. Um, and we were rolling out really? one interview every single day. So were you doing this like at your house? Yes. With your iPhone. Yeah. I mean, like, know. thank God for Amazon. We ordered studio equipment and everything, like, real quick. Okay. It wasn't, I mean, like, yeah, it was, it was, I mean. And what was the original idea? What What need were you filling? Connection. So, and connection because of stories. So, I go back from, I have to draw from my own experience. I'm, I got sober in 2011. And when I got sober, um, I, you know, was in a heavy 12 step program mm -hmm. and, you know, which is, there's literature that we focus on and what have mm -hmm. you as, as in really any modality that you might get sober in. Um, but I had a really hard time focusing on and absorbing information. So, you know, whatever was needed to be read, um, whatever somebody might be speaking on, like if we were in groups that was, you know, about a certain part of the book, I'd have a really hard time following, follow, following along and absorbing the information. Um, cause my brain was still just like, yeah, garbled, you know? And, but what I could connect with was when we would go to speaker meetings or somebody from the outside would come and share their story with us. And I might not connect with and take something, you know, their whole story in, but I would take a lot more than I would in step groups um, because it was real life experience, you know, right before me of a real life human being um, sharing their struggles and their hope. And for whatever reason, that was something 
that I could really connect to, I could latch onto and think, well, A, that sounds just like my struggles and B, if there's hope there, you know, and they've got solution. Um, and, the, and the struggles are always what for me, even now, are what like hook me in. I mean, that's how reality TV, come on. You know, like that's why reality TV <laughs> makes so much money. Um, it's a drama. Yeah. And it what it's it's what hooks you in, but then you stay around for the solution and it's like the the surprise that you either know or you didn't know you needed, but you're gonna get anyway. Right. And um and so people's stories are what I say and I truly believe. Uh, one of the biggest things that made a difference in early recovery for me to be able to latch on to a program for myself for, and for me to find my own hope. It's just that raw identification. Yeah. You know, so powerful. Yeah. For any one of us, any number of us, we might not have ever identified mm -hmm. or ever found that. We were just talking about it earlier. Um, a safe place to say, wow, these people look different than me. And I, you know, didn't think that I was going to have this experience, but I find myself really connecting. These people are just like me, Yeah, you know, in a really odd way that I hadn't discovered. And it sounds like you discovered in recovery. Oh yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. So you started the show just, we need, we got to do something. Mm -hmm. We need to tell stories. And we need to get it out there yeah. because everybody's on their phone in COVID. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were having um, support group, our own support group meetings regularly. But on top of that, the stories, what I knew were so important. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, we just, we were pumping them out and um, we quickly got a little overwhelmed. And so we like pulled back just a little bit. So what we was the overwhelmed? Yeah. What was the, just... Why was it overwhelmed? Yeah. Well, I, when I say we, I mean I was okay, overwhelmed. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, <laughs> it was it was a lot. I mean, like you know, we were talking about before the show, lining people up and mm -hmm. making it happen, and mm -hmm. um, we were doing live broadcast. So, oh, yeah, that's a whole different Some beast. Things, yeah. Sometimes technology doesn't work the yeah. way you want it to, yeah. do, and yeah. um, I didn't have a producer with me at my house. So, <laughs> you know, um, shout out Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. heck yeah. So, uh, yeah, we've we've been through some iterations of yeah. what the what the show looks like, and so you know, obviously, it went from just our so it was internal and private, and um, because this was an alumni based thing for oh. us. We had, you know, you think about like how many thousands of alumni we have. Well, each of them at that time had, as we do in early recovery or in recovery in general, a huge portion of our inner circle are also recovering people. Mm -hmm. And so their buddies, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, are, are going, oh, we don't, do you know of any meat? Like we're all of a sudden, none of us can do any of our stuff. And like I said, there, there weren't, it's crazy to think about because within following the following time period meetings did start. It's hard to think about the fact that like there weren't virtual meetings at a certain point, but there really, and initially there weren't, there weren't a lot of resources and the resources that were there, a lot of people didn't know about. And, um, That's right. and so we had a lot of our alumni asking like our, our friends our brothers, our sisters are, are, are needing support and they want to come in because of HIPAA compliance. We couldn't, you know, Broadcast a meeting. No. Yeah, right. And so the only way to do it was, you know, we we kind of took a took a deep dive into the logistics of it and realized, well, we can make this an actual public thing. And and it has so taken off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's taken off. And I'm curious about your audience. What have you learned? So growing from just the Promises alumni base, which is strong, mm -hmm. uh, as it is here at Cumberland Heights, um, your, has your audience changed? Has Absolutely. it adapted? And, and what have you kind of, what insights have you gotten from that? Because it's three years now, right? We're in 2023. Is that yeah. the right year? Yeah. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. We're on up. I think we just released our 117th episode. Wow. Um, yeah. And so I, I think that something that pleasantly surprised me is that a lot of, a lot of our viewership um, now is our people that are like basically everybody that 
everybody's in some form of recovery and get something out of it. And we focus our podcast on, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit around every kind of everything. Cause it, we're kind of, we do a lot of promises from like primary mental health, um, trauma specific, all the things in addition to addiction. Um, and so our podcast goes even further. So it's, I mean, we'll, we tell stories of, um, people overcoming adversity in general. So it, mm. you know, sometimes it's, I mean, it, any form of trauma, mm. um, all the way straight down to your good old addiction story. Sure. And <laughs> the classic. Yeah. yeah the classic. Yeah. And, um, I think what people have really connected with for us is just that they're like, people love connecting on healing. I, yes. That's what I was thinking about right yeah. when you were describing it is people like to, we're drawn to vulnerability, Yeah, you know, and authenticity. And we know it when we see it, you know, we feel it. And, um, especially in, and I'm no social media expert. In fact, I'm not even on social media, but I do a podcast. I know it's bizarre. Um, I think it's going well, they tell me. So it's kind of nice to be, you know, removed no, from I it. No, I don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and to be honest with you, the reason I got off is because for me, it was just overwhelming at times. Yeah. You know, and um, anyways, all to say, social media isn't full of wellness messages. Right. You know, and um, it's a part of why I think yours is so successful. And what we're trying to replicate is that people are hungry for um, those heart moments, you mm -hmm. know, to identify and to find hope, you know, that that might not ever touch promises, might not mm -hmm. have anything to do with promises, but right. um, just kind of on the human condition, connecting in that way is super powerful. And what is what a Absolutely. what an awesome kind of medium to do it in, you know? Yeah, I think that like you know once. You know, we'll get more into my story. I, I, like I said at the beginning, my life's been saved so many times. Um, mm -hmm. I know that I feel very strongly that any way at any time, you know, kind of like in some of our 12 step, you know, when it, anyone anywhere reaches out their hand for help, you know, I want to be there. I also want to be that conduit for hope and change um, to, to provide, to provide a conduit so that people can see the possibility for hope and change. Yeah. Or to see that, oh my gosh, I've actually been struggling with symptoms of trauma or these core beliefs that have affected how all of my relationships my entire life. And I had no idea because I just heard this person's story. Yeah. You know? It cracks the door. Yeah. You know, just like opens the seal a little bit for somebody to have... Uh, just an exploration of what that might mean for me and maybe I should reach out because we've been getting DMs that I didn't expect. Yeah. You know, of people connecting to it in a different way or I, you know, this person went through your program. Can I come on the show, you know, or yeah. I really appreciate this message. It, it's it's um, it's um, kind of exponential now and we are in no way like viral or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> We're just doing our little part here in Tennessee um, to try to tell unique stories of how we change. So I want to talk about you more. All right. I want to talk about your story. Okay, yeah. Because the Christina was kind enough to do a little research, and she actually found on our website. Don't be nervous about what we found about you, Patrick <laughs> Custer. But uh, two-time customer service award recipient. It was twice. Two times oh, in a row. That's awesome. Back in 2015 or 14. Make sure this isn't a soundbite. I'm going to let people promises know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we'll save that yeah. for you to share. Yeah. Uh, in our admissions call center at the time. So yep. um, just fill us in on your experience. If you want to start before Cumberland Heights, you can, but certainly want to hear about what happened here and, and kind of moving forward because there's been a lot. Sure. I'm such a chronological thinker, so I'm going to start go, at the beginning. Yeah, go. So I was born in, um, literally as a baby. Um, <laughs> get ready, buckle up. Yeah. Uh, so born in Dallas, Texas. Plano to be exact. Texans will know. Um, I know. Yeah. Okay, cool. I lived yeah. in Texas once or twice. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, moved here when I was three, so I literally don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. And Nashville's been home for me. Um, grew up in Brentwood my whole life. Uh, K through 12, was homeschooled. Grew up in a super conservative Christian family. Um, 
And there was a lot of good that um, I took from that in my upbringing. I had some super loving parents that, you know, as I, oh, I still have them. They're fortunate enough that they're still alive. Um, and uh, I, I always like to say, before I kind of go into the dynamic of my dysfunctional family system, uh, yeah, <laughs> that I, you know, I was raised with two lo- very loving parents that were doing, I truly believe were doing the best they could with what they had and what they knew um, to do. And as they've healed, they've continued to do that same thing. Um, but they're human, uh, just like you and me. And, you know, there was some stuff there. And so, um, I was the, the, the youngest of four kids and, um, gosh, we were, we were raised, like I said, in a super conservative Christian family. Um, pretty, I think what most people might describe as a more, um, rigid values, um, Mm -hmm. type upbringing and Mm -hmm. what have you. Um, and so a very black and white existence, good versus evil. There wasn't a lot of room for gray, Mm -hmm. um, when talking about like themes, um, in life for me. So, um, and for us growing up and, um, so, you know, I was homeschooled. I, what's kind of ironic is I'm like my, my uh, my sign is I'm, I'm a Leo. I'm super outgoing. I, I'm an enthusiast. A seven on the Enneagram. Uh, I, I like to be. I get recharged with people. I love doing stuff like this. Right. I need very little alone time. So good for you. Being in school. Well, thanks. Oh, uh, <laughs> so uh, my my two older brothers were they they're so much older than us they were they were out of the house by the time we were um my sister and i were growing up and so we were homeschooled together so having one other classmate you know it was i was socially starved you yeah, know you were yeah. yeah and um but i was a very studious kid a real good kid i didn't get in any that's not true my mom loves to talk about how i got a spanking every day until i was like 13 years old but it was cut i wasn't a troubled i wasn't a troublesome kid i was just curious um I was very remorseful and I wasn't a liar. It was funny. And I say that to set the, set the stage for when addiction stepped in. Again, my mom always talks about how she's like, you'd always tell on yourself. You always, your conscience would never let you get away with, you know, um, doing, you know, when you do something wrong. And I think that's one of the reasons why my family knew when addiction really striked, stri- striked, striked for me struck struck there we'll we go get it. Yeah. yeah sometimes those past tense words are yeah. hard yeah um and so i uh graduated from homeschool and uh, went to college and what was it my sophomore year i got introduced to drugs and alcohol and it start it started slow i think like, just like it does for many people not yes. all people but yeah. You know, I had like I grew up in that black and white existence of thinking that uh, that all drugs and alcohol were bad. Like, there's no room for gray, and I'm not pro- I'm not a proponent saying like you know sure. there's whatever. But um, you know, some people are able to live their life and do what and they celebrate do. Celebrate their be- tradition, yeah, and that's yeah, great. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. But um, I hear you. Yeah, and so it's a unique culture in the southeast, it which is. I think I appreciate that you're highlighting that I think a lot of people can identify with, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, you know, and yes, that I'll let that be what it is. And so, <laughs> um, but I, I had this specific viewpoint, especially because, and I'll mention here, you know, we talk about alcoholism or addiction and, or addiction, um, in general being emotional, spiritual, physical, um, malady. Right. And, the genetic part for me um, was very strong. Comes right down the lineage of my dad's side of the family, so it's already predestined on that side. But I, I'd always been told, like you know, the, my only education was don't ever touch it. You have no business doing it because you'll you'll be just like your. I'm the my oldest brother is also in uh, recovery now. My first twelve years of life. All I remember was him being completely obliterated. Like he barely, he stammered. Oh, really? Yeah. So um, those were my images of alcohol, drugs, 
I just like, I didn't know that there was an in-between or that many people experiment and don't end up being alcoholics for the rest of their life, you know? So anyway, I set that stage because I had determined to myself I wanted to be a good person and a good kid, and I never wanted to touch alcohol or drugs. And I don't remember why I ended up making that first decision to do so. Um, But I did. And when I did, I always say that this, this part is so imperative to me because I never knew how anxious I was. I never knew that I was living with this super high amount of anxiety when I, I, that night that I took, I had like three beers. The first time I ever tried it, I had what the Bible would describe as a peace that passes all understanding. Hmm. It passed all understanding that I had ever experienced. And at the time that was terminology that that was the closest terminology that I could use to describe my experience. Hmm. And, um, so I'm going to throw in here too, from a very young age, I don't know why, but my worst fear that from one of my earliest memories was that I was going to get a, a brain tumor and die from cancer. And um, so I, th- I think that was the start of my <laughs> fear-based decision-making and high anxiety. And um, so the theme that I took from uh, my first drinking experience was... I had peace. I did not want to go drink a million more beers. Um, I didn't feel crazy. It was the opposite from everything that my parents had told me. And so what message did that give me other than maybe I need to test every single worldview that I've been raised with because what else are maybe they stretching the right narrative on? And they have some evidence. Yeah. We need to experiment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next four, my, my drinking using career fast, hard and heavy. Um, it was the next four years and I I say it was fast because I think when I look, look at it compared to most of the people that we helped through treatment, like my, my drinking using career feels itty bitty. Mm -hmm. Um, but man, I many times could have, should have died. And probably, I mean, like the time, the amount of times I drove intoxicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And by the time I got sober, I was, I was, um, drinking between half and a whole handle of whiskey every day. Couldn't sleep more than a few hours without waking up. Um, because I was withdrawing going yeah. into DTs. Yeah. Needing, needing some more booze. Did you graduate college in that time period? Nope. Mm-mm. So you've dropped out, I assume. I did. Well, God, how many times did I drop out? Like I, 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 yeah, I like I gotcha. did some college, then I yeah. went, yeah, I did that whole in and out, in and out. Yep. And so I ended up getting sober, um, at 24, which was, uh, like I said, February, 2011. And, um, miraculously I was able to stay sober from there. From Congratulations, by the way, it's a big Thanks. deal, you know? Yeah. Where'd you get sober? Discovery Place. Out, okay. You know, in Dixon, mm-hmm. Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, what my dad, was it about that experience that you think started you on that journey? Wh- how to get me? Well, so back to my brother. At the at its inception, my dad was buddies with a lot of the guys that started Discovery Place and ended up on the founding board because they had put my brother through treatment so many times. Gotcha. And, um, so when he was on like his seventh treatment episode, um, they had just founded discovery and, um, that was of course where my parents sent him and where he ended up being able to get sober, say sober from as well. Um, and at its inception, discovery place was very, you know, 1997, it was, it was very unstructured, mm-hmm. um, compared to how treatment and how they look today. Uh, my brother's lived there for a year. And so we were out there every weekend. I mean, I spent my childhood like, okay. You're very familiar. You're very familiar. I remember sitting in the family, uh, in their like great room or whatever, where the 12 steps were on the wall, like looking at them, read through them as a 12 year old going, what is so wrong with him that he can't, I just did all these steps. I mean, that's just a lot of insight for a child to have. Yeah. Just being exposed to that subculture. And I'm, Cause when I got introduced to recovery, I had no, I didn't, I didn't 
thought a meeting was a business meeting. Like I had no, <laughs> I had seen that movie with Sandra Bullock, whatever it was. Yes, we're very professional in our recovery meetings yeah, at all yeah, times. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, but you have this wealth of knowledge and experience that you were walking around with in your active addiction. Did yeah. that, was that accessible in any way? No. Did you have any insight into that? No, because I think that I, I absorbed discovery place to me was the place that my brother got like he, there was something wrong with him and they were able to fix him. It was a beautiful piece of land with a, you know, a nice facility that I like to go to. They had a really cute dogs that I'd play with while I was there, a pond that I would fish in. Um, I mean, you know, uh, and so it's interesting because I look back, you know, as you ask that question. Yeah. No, I was, as a 12-year-old, I did not absorb any recovery-related stuff other than, like, the things that I enjoyed while I was there, you know, and that they that they helped fix my brother. Did you carry into that forward into your 20s when you were in addiction? Well... Honestly, I, I think that I was I was very stubborn initially. The fact that they had the audacity to think that I needed to go to the same place that my brother, who was a F up, um, right. went to. And, you know, um, I, you see, had been failing to exert my willpower and just needed to straighten up a little bit. Right. Makes sense to me. Okay. Yeah. I could still form my words uh, um you know I, that's interesting that you say that mm -hmm. that you could still form your words because one thing that you pointed out directly about your brother when you were a child was that he stammered all the time oh yeah so you might have had these kind of pieces of scaffolding that were kind of co-signing absolutely addiction of like well i'm not i have the same experience of like well you know this person over here i'm not as bad as them yeah. you know so i can't be well i was using zero rational thinking as Ooh. you do right also i haven't mentioned the fact that i was probably taking a minimum of 250 milligrams of adderall every day on top of that oh right so That's i was essentially different. speedballing yeah um and my brother i don't think was using any uppers when he was drinking so you know it's a lot different. easier to yeah not stammer yeah. on that amount of alcohol. Cause I, when I got sober, I was drinking the exact same amount as my brother. Um, he, interestingly enough, like today is a high functioning adult with a lot of kids and provides for them, you know, um, his first year of recovery though, like he could barely form sentences mm. like his, we, I mean, we wondered if his brain was pickled. I didn't know at the time what that meant, but I just knew that he was, messed up yeah right, you know right. um but his he had started i mean his story is like he he started at like 11 or 12 back in the day my parents my dad actually drank he had given it up by the time i was born um so they had a liquor cabinet and mm -hmm. he had started drinking and then watering down their liquor and you know all mm -hmm. that stuff um mm -hmm. as a youngster and it never stopped for him all the way up until he got sober i think at 30. Okay. so that was a very long time for to yeah. yep. you know um, so the compare and contrast of our, our drinking using is a bit different. Um, but I mean, it's crazy cause he and I are genetically very similar and out of all the four kids. And so it makes sense that we were the ones that ended up with alcoholism. Right. And, uh, yeah. So, so what was it that got you sober? Mm. Sorry. I'm a very thirsty person. Um, <laughs> So, oh my gosh, I had been like many of us living a bunch of lies. You were asking me about school. Um, I have learned to, this is something that like some shame that I have carried and learned to embrace now and like peel the layer back and, and yeah. just own. Yeah. It never, takes time. I never finished college. I haven't, um, life moved forward for me and I've been working hard and hustling ever since then and just didn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the path for me. Who knows? I might be doing it tomorrow. You know, I don't know. Um, and, uh, but I say that because at the time I had been, 
I'd been in and out of uh, classes, in and out of th three or four different colleges. Yeah. I had originally wanted to be a lawyer, and I thought my value and meaning was going to be pulled from me being able to be a litigator, you know, um, in the courtroom, arguing cases and yeah. having myself a feeling of importance. And, yeah, and yeah. yeah. I loved to watch Matlock as a kid. And yeah. I thought that would be really cool. Right. You know, I could help people and also, you know, bring, you know, have a lot of meaning in my life. Yeah. Well, um, I was a few years into political science, realized that I hate reading and writing. <laughs> well, yeah. And that's Turns a little out. essential to being yeah. an attorney. Yeah. I like the way you said that. A little essential. Yeah. yeah. Somewhat. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere uh, around there. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I, I kind of hopped around not knowing what I was going to do like many college students do. And um, I don't remember how I landed at this, but I knew I wanted to find me. I wanted to find something that was going to pro provide for me, a job that would provide for me. Um, and be important, you know, all the things. I don't know. Of course, like any great addict slash alcoholic, I had this overflated sense of self and needing to pr prove Me myself too. and all the things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um, for whatever reason, I ended up realizing I was like, nursing could be it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do nursing. So I'm going to go into nursing school. I had good grades. Ironically enough, I wasn't flunking out of school. Yeah, you made yet. it kind of seem oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> right. Um, it, but I, you know, I would just do a semester here or there, and then I just wouldn't go back. Yeah. You know, and um, so decided on nursing school. Did my prereqs, got great grades. Um, made got denied through the first two application processes. Didn't even remember applying the third time, because I was at a place of drinking so much that I, I was my short-term memory was not great and uh, i remember getting my acceptance letter and being like what um i'd kind of let go of hopes for the future i didn't know what was around the corner i was literally just working i was living at mom and dad's house working denying my reality you know <laughs> living for the moment and i remember getting that letter and going oh my gosh there's hope for my future and the wheels, the wheels started turning, got set in motion and everything. And I go into get set up. I get my, you know, my scrubs, all my books, you know, all the things you got to get for, for nursing school. And, um, I was, I was just like, I, I remember just feeling like, oh, this is it. This is the answer to, you know, my life's meaning and what, you know, what I've been waiting for. And. Mind you, I did not stop drinking and using the Adderall that I was using or anything like that. I mean, like I was going to clinicals and, and classes smelling like a brewery. And that still, you would think that the nursing director would have known, caught on to that because she was close enough to smell me. But that wasn't what got me kicked out. I was late three times in a row by a few minutes and they, they weren't having it. And um I couldn't, I had never been part of something that was that strict. I couldn't fathom that being five minutes late to something, they would just like kick you out of the program and you'd have to go through a whole new application process. Right. She sat me down. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> and right. she took at that, at that point in time, she took all the value and meaning that was left in my life away. Mm. Mm. And so the shame that followed was so strong that I spent the next, that was, I was, that was within my first month of nursing school. And I, so what, August or September of 2010. And, um, I spent from then until February of that following year living the charade, but each day, literally thinking the next day, I'm going to tell my family, I'm going to tell my parents the truth, but like, I could not face it. I couldn't even face it myself. I would do anything not to think about what had happened. Oh, they didn't know. No. I would wake up, put on my and nursing leave. school clothes yeah. or whatever, and get up, leave, and spend the day driving around or going to somebody's house. My friends didn't even know. Like, I'd, you know, the lies would just, this yeah. is where I'm talking about the lies yep. started coming yep. out. Because at this point, I was, I was full blown addiction. And um, so even my drinking buddies, like, they would, I'd be like, oh, I got to go to class, you know? In, in all reality, I needed people in my life to think that I was going to class. So I could, so I would just leave and go somewhere 
Like yeah. it was, it was the most bizarre. I look back and think, wow, what a house of cards I was holding together. So I thought, yeah, but I identify so much with that, you know, just these webs uh-huh. of a narrative that we create to co-sign whatever behavior, you know, whatever place that we're in. And you can't, it's hard to describe what that feels like when you're driving that ship, you know, cause you're not, you're aware, but you're just focused on making sure that you're maintaining that story. You know, like that's all that matters. Yeah. You know, I think too, it's, it, you know, we have to take responsibility for driving the ship, but at the same time, there's more than just us driving it. You know, the disease is sure. really at the helm. And I think that's one of the reasons why, like with the clarity that we have now, it's hard to sit back and think like, I honestly, like if I had to come up with some of the stuff, I, I look back and I think, my gosh, that's so calculated. And so like, yeah, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't. Yeah. But when the brain is a really powerful, powerful thing, when it's trying to figure out how to survive, which when you're living under the illusion that survival means continuing down this path of feeling the same way, which means being able to take the same amount of Adderall and get the same amount of alcohol every day. You're going to do anything. Yep. Anything. Hurt anybody. Say, do things that, do and say things I said I would never do and then lie to myself about having done them. Yeah. And then yeah. everybody else. That's a really great way to describe the disease because it's not, it has nothing to do with the people and places. It has everything to do with filling a need. Yeah. A perceived need, which is I need to be high in some way. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the most important. That's what people say when they talk about it, that's the most important thing in our lives is making sure that that need is filled. And if the narrative supports that, then we're going to continue to go to class. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So I went to class yeah. for some months. Okay. Um, and I love how you said that we're going to continue to go to class. Um, yeah, because. Uh, yeah, I went to I went to class for some months. Insert air quotes here, and um, and my dad had a major pulmonary embolism, and for oh, wow. like medical speak, for a giant blood clot that ran through his lung, and um, almost took him out. He was in the hospital. My I didn't go because I told I told everybody this was the time when well, at least we had uh, my family. We still had a landline back then, and um, and like a good old Southern family. Um, you know, when, when there's some sort of uh, family thing going on or a crisis, um, somebody usually sits at the helm and like answers the phone because everybody from church is going to be calling and whatever. I mean, like that's a real thing, but I used that to my advantage because I knew everybody in uh, that had been around me at this point. I was f- more and more isolated. I was isolating oh, from even I my see. drinking buddies because they were like, dude, are you you're like either you're not showing up or you're whatever. Like anytime somebody would make a comment to me, I'd be like, I got to spend less time around that person or not at all. So I was mostly isolated and physically I would try to, I would try to avoid being you're too close. You literally in this space right now would be too close for comfort for me because I had already gotten social feedback from my parents and other people making comments about, you know, how I smelled, even though I may have showered, I could not shower. You can't shower off a half to a whole hand, a handle of liquor coming out of your pores right. every day. Right, right. I mean, that you can't. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I was to the point where is, there wasn't enough denial in the world that could keep me from um, at least believing that I needed to stay that other people weren't they were going to get in the way you know so i stayed at home and used that as an excuse to um you know a quote-unquote selfless excuse to help um because there wasn't really anything i could do at the hospital and um three days in my siblings came to the house and they sat down and they did an intervention i mean there wasn't a professional there but you know they did the whole process of um, you know, sharing with me their, their stuff. And I, I remember one of my siblings said, you know, it's up, buddy. Like, we know you're not in school and the charade's over. Um, 
mom's not bringing dad, you know, fortunately dad's going to be okay, but she's not bringing him home to you in this. You're, we're going to take you somewhere and you're grown. So the choice is yours. We're either going to take you to treatment or wherever you want to go, but you need to get your stuff together because it's going to be one of those two places. And, um, it gives me excited. I know that's very strange, but no, it's not strange at all. Yeah. Like, let's go. It's change time, you know? Yeah. Some straight talk, which yep. is what we need sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I mean, I think that deep down inside that the um, yeah. little little boy Patrick just wanted to be live a life of joy and connection with others was just crying out and ready, waiting for somebody to like break through and reach in a hand, you know? And it was a perfect window of opportunity too, honestly. I mean, so uh, I said, yes, I went to treatment. You know, went out to Discovery Place and they almost, I, they love, when I tell this story, they, they love telling this story and also hearing it because they all laugh about it. I was, I was a pro- problematic treatment person. Were you? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. I thought by just showing up to, you know, where I was supposed to be, which they all have different um, accounts of my time there. I see. Yeah. Um, and I think many of them would say that I wasn't where I was supposed to be on time with given my track record might be true. Um, but I think that I was where I was supposed to be on time, but apparently I wore my pajamas and bathrobe everywhere. Um, and I don't know, I was just like a mess of a human and didn't follow any of the rules and acted like I didn't care. And I think I thought that it was enough just to show up. Yeah. Um, I was also so full of, um, like the semantics of it all. Everybody would go around in group and say, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And I, because I'm still living in this world where, it, yes, I have a problem, but it's a willpower problem, right? So I'm not going to say I'm an alcoholic, but right. you're all saying it and I'm going to get in trouble if I don't. So I would say, I'm Patrick, alcoholic. I'm not saying I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I see. I like so that. it makes a, a difference. Catch. See, I wouldn't, we wouldn't catch that. Right. Traditionally in group, we'd be like, oh, Patrick's participating. But right. in your mind, you were disconnected for sure. So yeah. stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's funny now Now that I look back and, and I'm able to laugh about it because, you know, because obviously like I was able to stay sober and things turned out the way they did. But, but fortunately, I was where I was, where I was supposed to be with the people in leadership over me that needed to be because two weeks in, oh, here's the fun thing. You know, when you go into treatment, just like here, everywhere else, they ask you, you have any legal stuff? Like we need to know, you in trouble with the law at all? And um, I think I had told them like one or two of the things. Here's the thing, I had racked up so much stuff. (laughs) Like I had been pulled over, I think 18 times um, in the six months leading up to going into treatment. Yeah. And so there was something that I hadn't um, dealt with or showed up to court for and um, because I was just a mess. And anyway, my parents got the the Williamson County sheriffs showing up on their doorstep and uh, while I was in treatment, uh, serving a warrant for my arrest. And so they, you know, reached out to the, the treatment team at Discovery Place. And I don't know what that, you know, I've never thought to talk to them about what that conversation was like, Um, because it was honestly one of, it was very pivotal in me having this radical acceptance moment where I would say it, well, it was a burning bush moment that led, led me to radical acceptance and surrender because they sat me down, this is two weeks into treatment, and they're like, you know, this is what happened. Carla and Dwight just got the Williamson County Sheriff at their front door, and you know, this was super overwhelming. You lied. You're you're the bad apple of the bunch. We don't know if we're gonna keep you here. Because there's not a point if you're going to um, taint the rest of the treatment experience for everyone else. And- Oh, so they used it as leverage with you. Oh, yeah. That's and it interesting. Worked. That's really interesting. Because at it's first scared. I was like defensive, like they were shaming you. And I'm like, how dare they? But really they used it as oh, leverage yeah. to motivate it you scared to buy the in. snot out of me. Interesting. And um, fortunately, I didn't take it from some place and decide to be some big victim. Thank God. You know, yeah. um, 
it scared me. I mean, and it scared me into a place of, because they, they, they left it saying like, we don't know what we're going to do, but you've got some thinking to do on what you want. Cause we, if, if for some reason we decide to let you stay, we need to, we need to know and we need to see that you want it. Mm. And at that time, all I knew was, I don't know what wanting it looks like, but I know I want to figure it out. Yeah, right. So from that point forward to this day, I have remained determined to wake up every day trying to figure out what wanting it looks like. Right. Which is surrender. Yes. That's what, you know, people think about surrender as, you know, stop fighting, but Sometimes surrender can be, you know, channeling our energies towards something else. Uh, earlier today, we were talking about, you know, that moment when you stop running away from addiction and you start running towards recovery. Mm-hmm. That can be surrender too. Absolutely. It's just buying into the surrender of, hey, recovery is an active change in my ideas and my attitudes. Yeah. And like the pit of our stomachs, like recognizing that can be really motivating, mm-hmm. you know, to start listening in group in a different way or taking the suggestions to meet with the alumni director or yeah, going yeah. to the events and introducing yourself. Oh yeah. It's tough, you know, but it's a key to freedom for sure. One of them. It is. And I mean, it, I mean, it changed, it changed everything for me. I mean, now did it make every, like, was everything sunshine? Or, no, yeah, of course. You know? Um, and, uh, you know, there's so much to my story and I want to think about well, like what, uh, what, what's pivotal. In- Tell me about the link between you getting into the field and, and, and early recovery. Oh my god! we can jump. Uh, I'm so curious. I would about not that. recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, now what I would recommend is I like, they, they did bite after bite for me, which was at the end of uh, residential, they were like, we think you should do our, our extended care program was based which was basically um, residential light. Yeah. You know? Um, so I did that for an additional three months. So four months of living in, you know, the compound. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, after that, moved to a halfway house. The halfway house owner was like, I want to start a treatment center. You want to do it with me? And I was no like, kidding. yeah. Well, actually, he asked me to be the house halfway house manager first. Okay, and I was like, yeah, we gotta "Yeah, make sure you can do that." I have some and then responsibility. We'll start a center. Yeah, and um, so yeah, we we yeah, so that and that ended up being Freeman Recovery. I don't know if you yeah. are familiar, yeah. but um, about a year in, I was like, "This is this is too much for me. I think I need to focus on myself." <laughs> I was, I was, um, I mean, twenty four seven in a startup is not something I would recommend for anybody in early recovery, especially working with other uh, yeah. people in early recovery. Right. But it's crazy how we, I thought in early recovery, I mean, when I look at the time frame of four months right now, it looks so much smaller to me than what four months looked like back then. hundred percent. And so, I mean, I'm thinking like, I've got a resume. You guys don't even know, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> you seen all this work I've done so far. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, fortunately I stayed sober through it, but, um, you know, I, I continued that I made the decision-making process for me was as things came along, I took them, I took what was offered to me, um, mm. because it felt, it still fell into the framework of, what was true to the core of who I am. You know, I always wanted to do something that involved helping other people and making a difference Mm -hmm. and something that literally involved like working with people. I love working with people. And so this, you know, checked off the boxes. And um, so from there, I I ended up leaving uh, Freeman, went to Discovery Place and started... uh, uh, their volunteer and alumni, uh, initiatives and stayed there for about two years and then came here. This, I was here for two years. Yeah. It's hard to, it's, I look back and I I think, oh my gosh. Um, 
And it, it was crazy for me because I remember coming here feeling so scared because Cumberland Heights was this name that I like to be revered. I was like, it's Cumberland's like the Vanderbilt of treatment centers, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, I was nervous as heck. I don't, yeah, just be, <laughs> I thank you, um, on behalf of Cumberland that you'd say that, but I, you know, I think that we're trying really hard sometimes let me just be really transparent with you. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's easy to be a legend in your own mind. And I think Cumberland, we actually just celebrated our Founders Day on the 25th, 57 years. That's awesome. Which is wild. Um, and, you know, we were the the first, if not one of the first treatment centers in Tennessee way back in 1966. And yep. so, but, but none of that, we're so grateful for that history, but that doesn't help in terms of the patients that are today mm-hmm. and kind of preparing for tomorrow. Yeah. And so um, I think it's special that one of the, one of the things I love about Cumberland Heights among just the altruistic fact that we help people about 2000 people a year, try to navigate away from addiction period, full stop is the professionals that have been touched by Cumberland. Yes. Like all the people in this community that have worked in this organization that are now going on mm-hmm. and doing really amazing things in other places. And so I'm grateful that th- that was a little bit a part of one of your stops too. 100%. You know? 100%. Um, I, I always say that my, I, I think the, the greatest chunk of my foundational education in really treatment, treatment, uh, education work was here. Hmm. I, I mean, I, wholeheartedly believe that i love seeing some of your colleagues too shout out to robin figlio sort of hearing this morning like i hear patrick Custer's gonna be here and i was like well come he'll be here at three come by and say hello and so she's just excited it's 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 a unique um environment for sure there's a lot there's a lot of folks that uh used to work here or still do work here in some cases Yeah. yeah 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 um it's a special place and i have so many wonderful memories here i mean i you know when it snows here which in Nashville, it's like the global warming. It's not. It's not <laughs> as common as it used to be. But yeah. um, I mean, like I would be the like, oh, it's gonna snow. Okay, I'll take a shift because I was so pumped about getting stuck, stuck here. here. <laughs> because I mean, you know, at the time I was like, yes, I'll get to work. I will get to go sledding on awesome hills. Um, yeah. One, you know, when the time's appropriate. And, of course, uh, of course. <laughs> And eat some great food potentially. Eat at the buffet. I mean, yeah. eat all the things. Yeah. Like, what else do you need? I, I honestly nothing. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah and you were here with some cool. There's a. It was a. It was a unique time period too in terms of some of the folks that were working here and. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So what happens after coming? Why did you leave? Well, I resent. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Usually that's the answer is story, yeah, yeah, story for yeah. people. Um, a growth opportunity. Yeah. Um, I knew that I wanted, I had been feeling in my heart for some time that I wanted to um, move into business development. And I had narrowed down uh, between the current company I worked for and one other place as being the, um, if it was going to be outside of Cumberland, uh, being the two organizations that I was okay with transitioning into. And, um, one of them offered me a job and the door, you know, just like so many of things, the things in my path of, uh, my professional career, it like the door, the right door opened when it was supposed to. Yeah. And, um, but it was scary because I had never worked. It's we're a for-profit organization. I'd never worked for for for-profit before my, even before I got sober, I'd always worked for nonprofits. And so this leap of faith, like jumping ship to go work for, you know, that was scary for me. Of course. Yeah. And, um, but it turned out great. Um, interestingly enough, I started off by telling you that, you know, my biggest, greatest, baddest fear was that I was going to get a brain tumor and die. Well, I leave here, and you know, as Robin was telling you earlier, she I would come get her from the admissions office, and we'd go on our walks, and she I'd be like, my head feels funny, and she'd be like, that's your allergies, just get over it, and um, <laughs> that's actually exactly what she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But continue. Yeah. yeah, and um, there, 
Yeah. I was going to say, there's some other people, lovely people who said the same thing. Brittany Hines and, oh my gosh, Kat, did you, was Kathy Knox still here when you came on board? I, she wasn't, but I remember Kathy Knox because she was my financial advisor when I was a patient here. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So, well, you know her. Yeah. So, you know, sugar, honey, sweetie pie. Yeah. You know, okay. Well, you, you know, she gave me the whole like, oh, okay. Because at the time she was my supervisor yeah. and um, yeah. she probably didn't, I don't know. Uh, but it, I, I left here, it was very shortly after I left that um, I was working for, um, at that time, our company was called Elements. It's now called Promises. We went through a name name change, rebrand, um, and uh, got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And it was, there's a lot of stuff surrounding all of that. It didn't end up being cancer, but it's what the original prognosis or diagnosis was what they thought it was. And, um, thank God that's not what it was, but I, I had so many secondary complications. I was in and out of the ICU for, um, the next six or seven months. Um, and really should have died that like of all the times I should have died. It, it was during this period. Mm -hmm. I got, for those of you who may know what it is, I got MRSA in my head. Mm methicillin and staphylococcus wait methicillin resistant staphylococcus aureus it's a really hard uh grouping of words to say but i've yeah. cracked it i think um really dangerous form of staph that just invades the body and a lot of people don't recover from because it goes systemic but i got in my head and it was nearing the the it was about to cross the blood brain barrier which in which case you yeah. like it's lights out. Um, and so I had to have multiple brain surgeries because it kept happening over and over and over and my brain wasn't healing. My spinal fluid was leaking out and it was, it was so many, so many things. Good grief. Patrick. Yeah. Scary. It was like the scariest, loneliest time of my life. And because it was, was infection, how you were like, how, what was your mindset? I mean, that, that well, sounds time wise. So uh, let's see how, so I got sober in 2011. So it's 2016. Is what five ish years? I'm I'm terrible at math, but whatever. So yeah. it's that much time sober. Um, fortunately, I had enough of a foundation of um, sobriety, and I what I would say is good sobriety. Um, mm -hmm. And I had been very plugged in at that point, and went into surgery and this whole process with a sponsor. Um, you know, I had fully worked the steps. I was, uh, you know, doing all yeah. the things that was recommended of me to do to be healthy. And um, I think it's one of, uh, it is a big reason why I was able to maintain sobriety. Um, gosh, it's crazy. It's, it's that, that event was so, I like, you know, a lot of times people talk about like BC, AD, when to a time period for me, for Patrick Custer's life, everything for me is pre and post brain tumor. Um, chronologically, like that's just. Absolutely. I mean, you know. I just can't imagine um, what that must have been like. Just all the fear, especially that you had had that thought as a child, which yeah. is bizarre. Yes. And just you must have been completely overwhelmed at times well i was and especially because you get the news like initially there uh, yeah i went into it thinking okay it's crazy they gave me the news and said we need you back here tomorrow we're gonna start testing and we'll probably have brain surgery by the end of the week and i'm going well okay but it's, I mean, there's, you know, people have benign tumors all the time. I was like, you know, like my doctor's daughter has one. I knew that. And I was like, you know, and they were like, they kept taking away every ounce of hope I had. They were like, she was like, sweetheart, I believe with you that we're going to have some good news, but it's not what it looks like. Like, I remember, like, I kept trying to be like, yeah, Jeez. but, yeah, but. And she was like, but I need you to know that this is not what we think it is. Yeah what this looks like is a very aggressive form of cancer that starts in your spine. And by the time it's in your brain, it quickly metastasizes through the rest of your body. Um, so I, I spent that next two weeks waiting for pathology to come back, thinking that this is what this was. 
Then I get the news that it's not cancer. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know? Um, and it was about a week later that I ended up back in the hospital because, uh, for brains, emergency brain surgery, because the back of my head was about to explode. Um, and so that happening over and over again, brought this whole different level of fear, trauma, disassociation. I mean, you know, the brain does crazy things just to be able to survive. So by the time the last the last time I was in the hospital was the time I was clinging on to dear life. It was forty five days straight that I was in the ICU, and at that point, every single person I wasn't allowed days. to have visitors. I was allowed to have three visitors: my now husband, my parents, and that's it. And every medical, the medical staff, I guess, actually, and my family. I remember my parents complaining about the stupid aprons they had to put on. But every they had, they did the yeah, full hazmat stuff yeah. um, when they'd come in to the room to protect you because of the infection. Yeah. And at this point, I remember my parents are people of faith. Like I remember when I saw that light of hope leave my mother's eyes and it was more of a like detaching. Mm. It was, that was the loneliest. And I, I hesitate when saying this because I'm like always so terrified that she's going to hear me say this and feel bad, but it wasn't her fault. Like it was the natural process of feeling like, we're losing him and it's too hard to, you know, um, because I was, I was back and forth from almost leaving this earth like constantly. And they would, I I would get, they would come visit, you know, as many days as they could when they'd come maybe like for an hour and the rest of the time I was spending completely alone. Cause there wasn't any, you know, you come at yeah. this point, what are you, what are you going to talk about? And, right. you know, and so nothing to do. there's a lot of me and God, a lot of me and God and dealing with the questions that I left unanswered and figuring things out. But I walked away from that whole experience, obviously alive. My brain healed itself and, you know, I had a wonderful care team that was able to, you know, fix me and get me right. Um, but I, but I walked away from that, uh, with nothing but gifts and a completely renewed, different outlook on life that I could have never had without something, uh, you know, forged, like, what is it that, uh, is, is diamonds are forged out of, uh, Pressure. like, pro- yeah, you know, well, this perspective that I was gifted, I think was forged in the same way that like you couldn't, me explaining it can't even give you the, the insight that I, you know, actually experience and walk in in life today. So I know that and I realize that and I take, I feel like I'm one of the few people that really get to live life on a, yeah, like the, the way that I appreciate days is so different. And that's, it's that's what fuels me when I talk about wanting to do whatever I can to be a catalyst for change in the world and in other people's lives. You've got a lot of resilience. I mean, addiction's one thing, you know, because um, to the what is it, one in ten, right? People experience addiction. Oh, yeah. I'm and like, yeah. Which statistic are we talking about? There's a lot of them. Yes. Well, you know, and so yep. sometimes when people hear about addiction, it's this, oh, my gosh, my, my brother experienced that or my cousin. But, you know, that's one thing. But to mm-hmm. overcome, as you said, you know, cracking your head open multiple times and having, I mean, that, that's that's a tremendous amount of resilience. And I can understand, um, well, I can't understand going through that experience. Mm-hmm. But from a recovery perspective with addiction and, and isolation, so to speak, like, I can understand wanting to fan the flame for other people of, you know, it's not every day, Patrick, for me, but hopefully most days I wake up with gratitude, Yeah, you know, and like just a different step before kind of that. I like the way you talked about like AD and BC, because I think Mm -hmm. so many, so many people's lives center around just a few events, Sure, whether that's, you know, the death of a loved one Mm -hmm. or you know, the transition, you know, in their life professionally, whatever, who cares? But um, recovery can invite you to live a different life. And I think if you, if you allow it to, it can color a lot of joy, you know, that I didn't expect that, that we don't expect, you know, and I see that in you. I see the light in you. I didn't know the story about brain cancer. Robin let the cat out of the bag, which I'm upset about. I wish you could have just (laughs) dropped it on me live, 
But I had no idea. You know, I didn't know that piece of your story and just thought I, that that's quite literally unbelievable that you've had that experience. So yeah. it was, I mean, when I tell it, I still, I'm like, this is a pretty crazy story. You know, sometimes I look back, but the farther and further I get from that time period, I look back and I'm kind of like, wow, I lived that because, you know, yeah. fortunately today, like I, I'm, I go get my annual brain scans and praise God. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and you got a great head yeah. of hair. Thanks. For those that are just listening, you know, stellar great head of hair. Yeah. You know, as do you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that compliment because, uh, you know, obviously coming from a guy with a good head of hair, you know, it's a responsibility that we bear, really. You it know, is. like we take it on and we <laughs> trudge forward. <laughs> a lot of people always comment, anyway. Anyways, it's a weird. Yeah. Listen, I may love serving other people and helping other people and want to do good work in my life. And, you know, I, I think about this comedian that I just interviewed. She goes, she says, you can save the soul, but you can't save the mouth. And I'm like, for me, I'm like, you can save the soul, but for me, you ain't kicking the vanity out. It's still there. <laughs> and, um, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's okay. You yeah. Know? It's, yeah. you know, yeah. you just got to keep it in check a little bit. So where's where's Patrick Custer going next? Where's the show going next? You are the second person to ask me this this week, and I don't remember the last time I've been asked that. Um, and the answer is Maybe I don't. Some movement. I don't. Maybe the universe is trying to tell you something. I feel like the universe is trying to tell me something, and I don't know what that answer is. And what I'll say is that just like the rest of my life, I yeah, I have not been. I've never been a vision board person. Right. I've never been a. This is what I want to do in five years. Um, I, I'm a, I mean, like, I love the whole like tenets of recovery about living in the moment because I love that. It is, I've never liked the thought of staying in the past or future tripping. Like I'm not, I don't feel at peace there and I love feeling at peace. Um, so anyway, I know it's good to think ahead of, but, um, <laughs> I don't, but you're along for the ride. Yeah, I'm along yeah. for the ride. So yeah. if you get some, some news and know before me, you know, we'll exchange you numbers know. after this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, shoot me a text. Let me know what it is. And I'll, I'll yeah. be excited to find well, out. Well, what I do know is that you have a gift in community. See, you're an extrovert. And I think I'm probably like a secret introvert. People don't peg me as that. But um, you have a gift. You really do for allowing people to tell our stories on your show. And thank you for taking time to come on ours here um, in support of Cumberland. But yeah, I, I, I would suspect that wherever you go, you're going to be surrounded with people and bringing hope, hope so. you know, <laughs> so it's good stuff. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Thank you. This has been lovely. Yeah. We'll see you next time.